Those are the stories we have to tell um, because they illustrate the horror of this war. It's not just about a land grab, it's about the destruction of lives. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. And my guest this week is Matthew Chance, CNN's senior international correspondent, who has become one of the most prominent reporters covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Matthew has incredible experience reporting on foreign conflict, having joined CNN in 2000 to cover the war in Afghanistan. Since, he has covered all of Putin's wars, from Chechnya to Georgia to Syria to eastern Ukraine through to the current invasion. He's also one of the few Western journalists to have interviewed Putin. Matthew had been reporting from Ukraine for several months by the time Putin launched his invasion of the country and spent the first month of the war covering it on the ground, never far from the fire. He got a well-earned break from covering the war in March and returned home to London to rest. He's now preparing to head back to Ukraine to a battlefield that has changed considerably since the first few weeks of the war. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for, for having me on the show, Aiden. I really appreciate it. So you were in Ukraine when Russia invaded back in February. And after delivering weeks of incredible reporting from the ground, uh, you left the war zone for a well-earned break a few weeks ago. First off, how are you doing? And have you been able to, to rest up these past couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, no, I, of course I've been able to rest. I mean, I mean, it, take, it takes a couple of weeks, if I'm honest, to, to, to shake off, you know, the, you know, you know, just, just the, it's not so much the stress of the war. It's just the fact that you're totally plugged in all the time and you are kind of on it 24 seven, just to whatever story you're on, actually, whether it's a war or any, any other kind of story for CNN, you know, you, you, it takes a bit of time to decompress. In addition to that, you've got the, yeah, the sort of, you know, the idea that you've just got out of a, of a conflict where lots of people haven't got out. Several people I know didn't get out. Um, and, and you add, you add some extra time uh, for that as well. You know, when, when you do this job, like for a long period of time, if you want to have longevity in this job, you've got to really try and and take care of that side of things. I mean, I'm not sure I do a great job of that, but I, I try to, right. to do a job of that. Are you just sitting down on the couch or something for, for a couple of weeks when you get back? Are you going to the pub? Like I know you went back to London. What are you doing in that time to sort of decompress? I, a bit of that, a, okay. a bit of sitting on the couch, a bit of you know going out with friends, etc. Yeah. I also went on this occasion. I went on a really long bike ride. Okay. Uh, sort of a gravel bike ride, and funnily enough, I hurt my finger. And I've got <laughs> my whole side of my finger and hand is numb from the oh god the, the gravel bike, and I thought it was going to last a couple of days or something. It's just still there now. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going back to Ukraine now, inhibited. Right. With, a slightly numb little finger on my left hand. And, and, it's not going to affect my reporting. Okay. And so, like, what about it is exhausting when you're doing, because I've spoken to other, a couple other reporters uh, who are in Ukraine, Dan McLaughlin at the Irish Times, Jane Ferguson uh, at PBS, and they've all said that it is, like, it's something that you really need a break from after a couple weeks. Is it because you're, it's exhausting sort of waking up every day and working around the clock on this one story? Or is there something particular about war coverage that makes it m more tiring than I'd say other assignments are? Yeah, there's, there's something particular about it. Mm. I mean, look, first, first, first of all, you, look, it is exhausting, as I mentioned, just being on the story 24-7. Right. You know? And of course, the way that we operate at CNN as well, with the time zone differences, often you're sort of doing extremely late nights and getting up extremely late. So you work all through the night to do the shows. 
big American primetime shows. Then, of course, you've got to get up really early in the morning, otherwise you miss the actual day that you know that you've got you've got to cover. So you, you've got to burn the candle at both ends, and so that's just just tiring, no matter what what the story is. I'd say the additional issue is that you know it's it's there's there's a certain amount of stress associated with living and working in a war zone where you know you have to dodge you know dangers in the way that you do in in ukraine and when you when you're under constant uh threat Mm. of injury or death of course um that in itself that exposure that constant exposure to danger it has an impact and is and is stressful and i think you know it makes you tire i think makes me tire a little quicker perhaps and and so ideally you'd want to keep your exposure to that kind of environment as limited as you can a couple of weeks three weeks mm. the truth is, is is that yeah i was in that situation as many of my colleagues were you know since the hostilities began on February the 24th. But of course, I was in Ukraine for a couple of months before that as well. I just got better from COVID. I'd had COVID. I was in a hotel in Kiev about two weeks before, kind of worried to death that that was going to have an impact on me as well. And I was fine, obviously. Um, But, you know, I'd been there before Christmas and it's part of my patch. Ukraine coverage has been part of my patch. And because for so many months beforehand, Russia was kind of rattling the saber and threatening to invade though I didn't think for one second it would invade. Huh. It meant I'd been there working very hard anyway for some some months beforehand. What I found strange about this war, or, or sort of a little bit unnerving, is that, and, and Jane Ferguson mentioned this when I spoke to her, she said it's been a more dangerous war for journalists than, than other ones that she's covered. You know, in the first month of fighting, five journalists were killed. Is there something about the way this war is being waged, where the front lines are, and that being unclear, that makes it more dangerous for journalists than than other co- uh, conflicts that you've covered? I don't know whether I don't know whether I think it has been more dangerous. I mean, it's definitely been very, very dangerous, right? But I, I, how do you how do you assess the the level of danger? Is it simply by the number of journalists that are killed in a given period of time? And I don't know. I remember covering the Georgia War back in two thousand and eight, and there were a lot of journalists. It only lasted eight days. And there were several journalists killed in, in that short period as well. Um, so if you take the number of journalists killed over the number of days, I mean, I think that was an extremely dangerous. No, I mean, I, the point is, whenever you're covering uh, a, a violent situation, there is a high degree of unpredictability. And there, no matter how much planning you put into mitigating the dangers, you, you can't really com- ever completely avoid them. You know, it is a dangerous occupation covering a unpredictable and volatile, violent situation. And you could get caught up in it. And I, I, I think that, you know, a number of the people I'm thinking of the I don't really know the circumstances about the Fox crew that much because I you know, I just left. But I remember when the Sky News crew from Britain uh, were, were fired upon in their car. I mean, they were just sort of probing the front lines, seeing what they could do, what they couldn't do. As as many of us do in, in in this kind of reporting, to see what you can see and see what you see how far you can go a little bit. I don't mean pushing the boundaries of adrenaline. I mean just literally see how far in, you can go up the road. Right. That is inevitably inherently dangerous because when you've gone too far up the road, it's already you know too late. You you only know you've gone too far because you get open fire on, and and so yeah, I think 
this war is very was very much unfolding in front of us. We didn't know where the battle lines were. They were constantly shifting. You know, we're not used to covering this kind of war in Ukraine. And so you know, I think it, it, it obviously led to, I want to say, some miscalculations, perhaps on the part of news crews, but it definitely led to some appalling and tragic um, incidents. You know, you mentioned the Fox News crew. They, they came under under Russian fire, and Benjamin Hall, who was an on-air reporter for, for Fox News, uh, got terribly wounded, and two other journalists uh, were killed. I'm curious what you thought when you when you heard about that attack. Did that did that give you pause about covering this conflict any more than than other sort of attacks on journalists had? Well, I, I always knew that you know going into this conflict that that, that was a risk. It's not, it's, not, it's not the first conflict I've covered. And, you know, I often deal with these kinds of risks. I mean, what struck me about the whole Fox thing is that even though it was like, I think it happened on the day or the day after I was leaving. So I was kind of out of the mix slightly because I was in a car or just across the border into Poland or something like that. But I just had a, I just, I'd just been speaking to Pierre, who was the cameraman with Fox, who's, who's now unfortunately dead. Um, just the day before, we were having a cup of coffee at breakfast together, um, and and Benjamin as well. I mean, I didn't I didn't know them very well, but I had a conversation with Benjamin about about reporting in Ukraine because obviously I've done quite a bit of it over the past several years, and we, we chatted about the the, the lay of the land uh, politically. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I also in that hotel we were staying in, Intercontinental in uh, in um, in Kiev at that time. You know, everybody was there poised and bracing for the possibility of a Russian invasion. That, that, that invasion of, of Kiev, that, that concerted attack on Kiev never came, fortunately. We didn't know that at the time. But what that did, that atmosphere of pressure, it brought us all together in, in quite a close way. We we're only having two meals a day. You know, the, the, there were sort of food was in short supply. So we'd all congregate at mealtimes and have a chat and exchange, exchange stories. And it brought us quite close together in a short period of time. And so it was all the more shocking for me that, that somebody I'd just had friendly relations with had gone out in a car the following day and been killed so it's, it, it's awful unfortunately this is this is something that uh, we uh, we have to accept not accept but it's something that happens in, in this in this career have you run into in yourself any particularly dicey situations while covering the the ukraine conflict that where you thought you know potentially your life could be at risk i mean i think a couple i mean yeah, again with the, with the caveat that your life is always at risk because you don't know what's going to happen, right? You could be driving quite happily down a road and then somebody opens fire on you. Um, and that, that didn't happen to me. But I did, for instance, on at least two occasions, become very close to or feel that I was under some threat. The first time was when, you may remember, uh, quite early on in the conflict, I encountered Russian forces just a couple of hours after they'd landed in Kiev. There were special forces. They were at the Antonov Air Base, which is north of the Ukrainian capital, north of Kiev. And I mean, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I mean, I, I thought it was a Ukrainian checkpoint. And we drove up to them and we chatted to them about where the Russians were. And they were like, we're, we're the Russians. We are the Russians. And then just as they said that, literally within 30 seconds later, after we were all kind of like accepted that this was the reality, there was a huge gunfight. Um, you know, obviously, you know, um, these people who had landed, these Russian special forces that had landed at this Air Force base were the subject of a counterattack. And we were caught right in the middle. So we had to back off you know, hide behind a building. We went live at that point as well. Um, just after the fighting ended, um, we, we went live on, on CNN. But it was one of those moments where it, it, it ended quite well. We got to see Russian forces for the first time. No one else had done that since they were deployed. 
uh, we got to witness a firefight from a safe distance. But, it, you know, Aiden, it could have gone very differently. We could have been all killed in that firefight. Um, you know, we were right between the two enemies fighting each other. And that's not a great, a great place to be. And that's just one incident that I can recall. Um, and of course, there were, there were a number of others as well. Now, you're planning on going back to, to Ukraine. What do you plan on covering when you get there? Is, is, has the war changed in a way that you are covering different fronts of it or covering the war in a way that is different from the first couple of weeks when you were there? I mean, look, the, yeah, the, 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 the battle lines have changed. I think we're no longer looking at an imminent capture or an, an imminent assault on, on the capital, which is, which is something, because at least that city can you know, begin the process if it already hasn't. Of, of returning back to some kind of normality. Um, but there is a battle brewing in the east of the country. It's going to be a very different military situation. Um, we're talking about big, wide open areas, which are probably going to be, you know, the, uh, you know, the, it's probably going to be a situation where, you know, lots of artillery is going to be fired from each side uh, across open ground. Um, not, not great, not great to cover that. I have to say, I mean, you, you know, artillery fire, indirect fire, as they call it, artillery fire, is very, very nerve-wracking to cover. It's bone-shaking. It, you, know, you, you feel a sort of sense that you've got no control over what happens as you hear the shell whistling through the air and exploding uh, close by, but hopefully not close enough for it to have an impact on you. But you know, I find that terrifying, actually. You can't see the faces of the people that are shooting which means you can't connect with them, which means you can't negotiate with them. You could just be killed and nobody would even, the people who fired the shot wouldn't even know they'd killed you. Um, and so I, I hate that. So I'm going to try and stay away from that as much as I can, but inevitably that's where the war is going, it seems. And so I'll have to find a way of covering it, of covering it safely. In addition to that, in the areas, and we've already been seeing a lot of this, in the areas that have been, that the Russians have withdrawn from, it gives us an incredible opportunity journalistically, and it's horrific, of course, to see what was left behind, see the, the human impact of this invasion, and to hear about the stories of people who have been so appallingly affected by this conflict that it's sometimes hard to, it's hard to watch. The, the killings, the rapes, the murders. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's sickening, isn't it? But you just have to, you, 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 those are the stories we have to tell um, because they illustrate the horror of this war. It's not just about a land grab. It's about the destruction of lives. And, and that is really the nub of, uh, you know, the important thing about this, this, this story, what's happening. Is it hard to do those sorts of interviews, like where you're interviewing people who have had their lives destroyed, their loved ones killed? It, do you have to sort of put on a stony face and get through the interview because i can imagine it can be quite like emotionally troubling to interview someone who's been through something so horrific like that I mean, of course i mean you'd have to be dead inside wouldn't you right. to not moved by by you know the, the story of somebody that has suffered such loss yeah and so yes i mean yes it's incredibly moving um and, you know and sometimes you have to you know you have to sort of take a step back and you know kind of take a breath because, you know, look, I mean, we all get affected emotionally by these things, of course. But, I mean, as a journalist, your primary responsibility there is to try and tell that story, is to try and you know, make sure that people around the world understand the trauma, the hardship, the loss that these people are suffering. And so, in some ways, that provides you with an emotional protection. 
because you are doing something. I've heard lots of my colleagues, you know, over the years say, oh, you know, I've, sometimes you feel as a journalist, you, you're not doing enough. And some people feel they need to do more and they sort of move into you know, taking direct action. Um, but I, I often feel, I, I, I think I feel that, you know, shining light on these people, exposing the horrors that have been undertaken uh, and, the, and the terrible things that have happened to people is what we do. It is the contribution that we can make. And it's an important contribution because when people see that, when people hear it, policymakers can take action. Um, people become you know, aware of the crimes that are committed in the name of war. And that's important. That's not nothing. That's a, that's a big thing. You're one of the few journalists who is covering this conflict who's actually interviewed Putin. Do you have any sense, having spoken with him, having covered him for so many years, of what he is thinking right now? And I know that's a really hard question because no one seems to have any idea what he's thinking. But do you have any sense of what the strategy is with with this war at this point? That's a, so that's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't, I, I won't pretend to know what Putin's thinking. No. In fact, um, I'm, I'm still haunted by the fact that I didn't know he was thinking he was going to invade. Right. Even though, in retrospect, he'd signposted that very well. Huh. I was still sitting there, standing there on the roof of the, the hotel when the bombs started to fall in disbelief that this was actually happening. And the reason I thought that is because Putin's strategy was working so well, rattling the saber, you know, getting concessions from the West. They were talking about redrawing the security architecture of Europe in Russia's favor without a bullet having been fired. And then he pulls the trigger and uh, and does this. So, so I, I I don't no I don't know what he's thinking. All I can say is that I've covered a lot of Putin's wars. I've covered all of Putin's wars. You know, basically all of them, from Chechnya through to you know, let's get this in the right order: Chechnya through to Georgia, through to Syria, through to Eastern Ukraine, through to this one. Um, you know, all of them. I've covered. And, and when you look back on it, you see a progression of Putin using violence to uh, to assert his power, to uh, reclaim Russia's place as he would see it on the, uh, you know, in, on, on the global stage as a great power. And this is just the latest iteration of that. This, this is this is Putin with a sense of Russia's destiny, saying that, you know, we have had we have been slighted over the decades, and this is Russia under Putin attempting to correct that. But obviously, he's done it in such a horrific—I mean, you could say ham-fisted way—that yeah, I mean, the, the, the reputational damage this has done. Right. I mean, I don't want to talk about reputational damage of Russia when there's actual damage being done to people's lives. But if you separate that a second, just think about what he's done to Russia. Russia's reputation around the world. I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? So, so no, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know what he's thinking. No, right. I don't even I don't know how he's going to get out of this. Right. How, how, how does that happen? Well, do those previous conflicts that you've covered give any sort of idea as to what the end game might be, or what he might do when faced with different options as the conflict goes on? Putin wants to be seen as an equal with the United States. With, with the great powers of the... It is a great power as far as it is concerned, as far as Putin's concerned. Um, he wants acknowledgement of that. And that means, I think, that you know, he wants a, an international acceptance that Russia has a sphere of influence, that Russia has 
you know, veto over what some countries in its backyard do or don't do. Um, but, and, and I think that's what Putin's going to be demanding. And if he can't get it, then he'll, as much as he can, take it and impose what he wants these countries to do upon them. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's what's been, that's what's been, that's what's driving him. Um, I, I don't know what he would accept now, though. I don't see how he he gets out of this. I don't see what a win looks like for him. Look, in in, in these kinds of situations, though, when you're involved in a war that you can't win, and surely by now, President Putin understands he's not going to be able to win this in the way that he perhaps thought he might be able to win it in the in the outset. All you can do is declare, you know, is declare victory and leave. And so I'm I'm sort of hoping that at some point very soon, perhaps when Mariupol, if Mariupol falls, when it falls into Russian hands, uh, perhaps that would be a, a, a moment for Putin to sort of draw a line and say, OK, we have succeeded in our military uh, tasks. Now it's time for this to to be put on hold or, to, or for us to pause or for us to stop this special military operation, as he calls it. I mean, I, I hope you'll do that because, you know, the alternative is just the continuation of the bloodshed, which is, you know, it's heartbreaking and appalling. Right. You know, I want to talk about media in in Russia a little bit. You had a, a great interview with uh, an independent journalist in Russia, the editor of, of TV Rain, And he said that there's a digital iron curtain in Russia and that independent information is at this point basically forbidden. Has that curtain held in in those weeks, do you know what the extent of the access to free information within Russia is at this point? Well, I mean, it's a question of, I mean, you can't stop people getting information if they're determined to get it and if they've got the technological know-how to get it through VPNs or whatever. They still exist in Russia. Um, But you're right, and he's right, that there's been a concerted tightening of the grip around independent media for many years, actually. It's been happening for, for quite a few years, particularly in the last couple of years in Russia. Independent news organizations have been targeted. They've been closed down. They've had to brand themselves as foreign agents before they say anything. Um, and, and so that's been uh, something that's been happening for some time. But that pressure has now you know, reached critical mass. And so many of the uh, independent news organizations like Echo of Moscow Radio or Dodge TV, the editor-in-chief of of which you know I, I spoke to, they've just been forced to close down and to, you know, in some cases, you know, appear uh, online elsewhere. Um, does it cut through? They never really cut through that much anyway. The majority of Russians have, for many many years, for forever perhaps, got their information from Russian state television. That's the main conduit of news in that country and that is tightly controlled by the Kremlin and it's the it's the official line it's state propaganda and that has for years been perhaps since the Soviet Union that has been the main conduit to which through which Russians get their news and that has not changed yeah. that that's still the case which is why i think one of the reasons why um, we're seeing you know a, a, a you know, we're seeing, you know, we're not seeing wide scale protests, wide scale dissent when it comes to what Russia is saying it's doing in, in Ukraine. A lot of people, you know, they only get their, their news from one channel uh, and they don't really want to look for it anywhere else because they, they, they don't want to hear it. Right now we're from Ukraine, we're getting we're getting reports of not just indiscriminate 
killing of civilians, but deliberate killing of civilians. Are Russian media sources, from what I can tell, they're not blocking that out entirely, but they're spinning it to cast those deaths as like a false flag attack. To what extent is that prominent throughout Russian media? And to what extent do you think the Russian people are, are believing that? I think it's astonishingly cynical, isn't it? It's, that, it's that, truly that, shocking. Yeah. That Russians will like show sort of the, the bodies of some civilians with their hands tied behind their backs and a bullet through their heads and go, look what the, look what the Nazis have done, you know, in Ukraine. And, and, and you know, and, and just expect everybody to believe that. <laughs> I, I, it's a really tough question, isn't it? You know, how come that bold, crude propaganda seems to seems to work? Right. It's a question I, I, I grappled with quite a lot, and I don't I don't fully understand it. But I think, and I've got, you know, I, I think it's that you know, one of the one of the reasons is that is that Russians are not stupid, right? They they get it. A lot of them are very well travelled, very well educated, obviously. Uh, particularly over the past couple of decades, people have got used to interaction with the outside world. It's become a, an important part of, of contemporary Russian culture. Um, I just think, you know, one of the one of the uh, the, um, the functions that propaganda serves is that it creates it's a tool which allows people to avoid the reality. Um, and I spoke about this with the editor-in-chief of, of Dost the other day. Um, you know, nobody wants to believe that their country is capable of killing babies and and an intentional rape and death, killing of murder of, civ- of civilians. Crude Russian propaganda provides people with a means of rationalizing those dead bodies they're seeing on their screen. They... they they believe it because they want to believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you have to accept there's something fundamentally wrong with your state. And 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 and, and while you know you, you can see a lot of people do accept that in Russia and 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 are opposed to the conflict in Russia, I think the majority of people, silent majority of people, don't want to think about it. They don't want that to be their reality. They want to believe that this is a that Russia is a good country that is fighting a just cause, and it is helping the people of Ukraine. They're told that by the official media. That's good enough for me, is what they'll think. Beyond just it being absurd on its face that there that you know these killings are being done by you know Ukrainian army to try and blame on Russia. What evidence do we have through reporting that these killings are being carried out? I mean, look. I mean, the evidence is the is the is the is the other corpses right. that that are being found, hundreds of them, in the areas that have been evacuated, left by by the Russians. I mean, particularly in the northern suburbs of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, which were you know occupied by Russia for some weeks. Again, when I was back in Kiev. We thought the Russians were going to push right deep into the center of the capital. They never did. They stayed on those outskirts. And when they left, they left a trail of bodies on the streets, in the cellars, their hands tied, the bullets through their heads, the naked women, the naked children, the mass graves, you know, the bodies in wells. Um, I mean, you know, the satellite imagery that supports 
the idea that the bodies were there when the Russians were there. Right. The New York Times, I think, analyzed the satellite imagery yeah. in Bucha and found that they that the, the uh, Kremlin yeah. spokesperson claiming that it was carried out by Ukrainians, yeah. satellite imagery showed that those bodies were there when the Russians were in control. Well, it's also it's just like common sense. I mean, I know that phrase. That's a that's a <laughs> that's a that's a discredited idea. The idea of common sense, but the idea that the Ukrainians will have gone into those places and massacred a bunch of their own civilians to make the Russians look bad right. is just an absurdity. You know, when you've got so many thousands of people dead already at the hands of Russia, which is not in dispute, why would you massacre a few more people to 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 make the Russians look bad? It doesn't make any sense. No. It makes no sense. It's obviously. also a conspiracy theory that I remember from the Syrian civil war. That yeah. when the, the when Assad and and the regime was trying to smear the the counter revolutionaries, that was something that they would often say that these that, that they were behind these attacks and that they were false flag attacks. Yeah, I mean, look, to, to deny deny the evidence of your own eyes, you know, it's like a, right. it's like like a line out of which I've misquoted out of <laughs> out of out of nineteen eighty four George Orwell. But it but it's 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 a bit like that. Yeah, so just you know, in the face of you know concrete evidence. The response from Russia is routinely categorical denial. Right. That 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 is how they confront evidence against them. Totally deny. Never underestimate the power of denial. Yep. Um, and and they do that. And you know what? It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for you. But it works for some people. Some people go well. Actually, you know, did the did the Ukrainians massacre those their own people? They could have. You know. So it's introducing it's introducing an element of uncertainty into what would otherwise be, you know, completely undebatable. Right. It's also another unsettling aspect of this is that the impunity with which the Russian troops are acting is not new. You know, Russia committed egregious war crimes in Chechnya 20 years ago, and there wasn't any accountability. Do you think there is any world in which people are held accountable for what's happening here? Um, well, never say never, but, but you know, you know, we, we, we said never when you know, Srebrenica happened uh, in, I'm going to get the date wrong now, but I think it was 1996. It might not have been. I need to check that. But basically when Srebrenica happened, who would have thought that the Bosnian Serb perpetrators of that crime against humanity would have been held accountable. But Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Serbia at the time, died in prison, having been you know, before a verdict was reached. Uh, Radovan Karadzic, who was the Bosnian Serb military commander, was convicted of crimes against humanity and is in a prison in Britain right now, serving his sentence. Um, you know, uh, there have been other examples of horrific war crimes that you thought you'd think would never, you know, would never be brought to justice, but they have been. Charles Taylor, the Liberian president, is also serving a prison sentence for the crimes that that, that he orchestrated as leader of Liberia. Um, and so, like, like I say, never say never. Look, at the moment, yeah, I can't see any possibility of anyone in Russia being held to account. So long as, as, as Vladimir Putin is in power, and so long as, you know, you know the current regime in Russia... Is, is in existence, whether it's with Putin or not, I can't see any Russian soldiers or commanders or anyone else being sent to an international tribunal to, to stand 
stand trial for this. Obviously not. But that but that doesn't mean that an effort shouldn't be underway, and it, and it is underway, to gather evidence that will stand up in a court of law at a later date, perhaps decades away. You know, a dead body isn't evidence of a war crime. You need to connect particular individuals with them with a, it's a murder investigation you know mm-hmm. with, with a with with a killing with an order to kill and with a, and with the pulling of a trigger the shooting of a shell you know and and so that's why these intercepts that we're picking up from um that are being reported a lot from uh, from the commanders issuing orders to do stuff that's why the satellite imagery uh, is so important and it's why the interviews that are being conducted on the ground by investigators and human rights organizations and, and, and forensic teams uh, are, are so important as well as documenting where the bodies are you know th- this seems like a like a futile activity at the moment but if this ever does make it to court you know, you've got to have evidence to convict otherwise right. the criminals walk and does the work of journalists on the ground contribute to those investigations I, th- I think it must do. I mean, it's not, right. I think it must. I mean, I hope it does, you know, um, it, not least because you provide a sort of, you know, an initial sort of oversight of, of the context of, of what's happening. And you, your reports can sometimes inadvertently, you know, connect the dots uh, in, in a way that it would be hard to do if you didn't have that kind of journalistic commentary. Right. Uh, not if you didn't have that running. Uh, um, and of course, there are efforts that some journalists undertake, including those of some of my colleagues, to specifically forensically connect killings with perpetrators. Um, and that's, of course, extremely valuable to um, to war crimes um, tribunals in the, of the future. Now, my last question, I, I wanted to ask about how Ukrainians are getting news about what's going on. What is the sort of media infrastructure in Ukraine right now? Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure I have, um, you know, all the, all, the, all the facts about that. Okay. But what I will say is that, unlike in Russia, uh, Ukraine is, for all its faults, an, an, a relatively open society, a very open society. And, of course, you could always get, there was lots of independent media, lots of media that was very critical of the government, uh, lots of media uh, that was, you know, you know, investigative um, in its in its sort of nature, and and so Ukrainians have got used to a very open media environment, quite 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 hostile for, for the authorities in, in many in many instances, um, which is actually a sign. It's, it's often a sign of sort of a, a healthy country, I and mean, I'm not sure. That the, uh, the democracy in Ukraine is the healthiest that it could possibly have been, but um, but it's a very different story, a very different picture in terms of the media landscape in Ukraine um, before the war, uh, uh, very different to to what we see in we see in Russia, and of course so 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 in this period, obviously there are you know infrastructure problems. You know, you're going to see you know, damage to the internet and damage to you know, television services and radio services, of course, but. I still think it's going to be if you've got if you've got um, you know a device that can connect to the internet, you're going to be able to see the news. You're going to be able to see this. You're going to, be able to hear this. You're going to be able to you know watch CNN online or on 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 on, on your television set. You know in a much easier way, much more easily than you could if you lived in Russia. So 
Ukraine, Ukraine now is a, is a much more plugged in, connected place with the with the rest of the world than, than Russia is. Matthew Chance, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Matthew Chance on Mediate.com.